0: Welcome to the very first episode of Couch Detectives, where I bring you true crime stories of murders, solved and unsolved, mysteries and conspiracies that may have happened in your backyard. This pilot episode is brought to you from my backyard. This is the case of Daryl Hunt. If you are from my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, then this story is not new to you. I am sure you have either read about it or you've heard about it. And today, I want to do a deep dive into the details to give the rest of the world a peek into this very complex and layered case. Now, this case spans over two decades from 1984 until 2004. But the results of it lasted much longer. The bulk of this case actually occurs long after the initial verdict is read. So in 1984, we have Deborah Sykes. She was a 25-year-old copy editor for the Twin City Sentinel. Some sources call it the West salem Journal Sentinel newspaper. It depends on what you read. She was married and living with her parents in Morrisville, North Carolina, while she and her husband were looking for a house in Weston Salem, North Carolina. Deborah had spent some time in Tennessee before returning home to North Carolina in July of 1984. Her friends described her as a lovely young woman whose life was just getting started. Now, on the other side of this case, we have Daryl Hunt. In 1984, Daryl was a 19-year-old young man living in Winston-Salem. He was raised by his grandparents, and it has been stated that his mother was actually killed when he was only nine years old. Sometime in Daryl's late teens, he spent some time in California, and then he later returned to Winston-Salem. The incident occurred on August 10, 1984. This is about a month after Deborah had returned from Tennessee. And it was just a normal day for her. She left her parents' home in Morrisville, North Carolina, to make the drive to Winston-Salem. If you know North Carolina, then you know Morrisville and Winston-Salem is not that far apart. So she was living in Morrisville, but she was working in Winston-Salem. She was supposed to report to her duty as a copy editor, but she was late coming to work, which was apparently totally unlike her. And this concerned her boss, Fred Flagler. At first, a lot of the co-workers, they didn't think too much of it. But then some of the co-workers went out looking for her because it just didn't sit right with them. And Fred was like, she is a prompt young lady. She's reliable. This is just not like her to be late. Apparently, after their search, they ended up finding her car, but no sign of her. Now Fred's spidey senses are going all the way off and he knows something isn't right. He called the police in an attempt to file a missing person's report, but the police told him that only family members could file missing person reports, which in my couch detective mind, I'm thinking, okay, call her family to have them report it. Maybe he didn't want to alarm them because it's so early, but I'm like, if you want the ball rolling, hey, you have to make some steps or the police could just take his word for it, right? Hey, but maybe protocol. Later that evening, they found her body and she had been raped and repeatedly stabbed. Fred, her boss, was the one who had to call and inform her husband and her family of her death. And this case was aired all over the radio and news because it is absolutely a vicious crime. No denying that. And, of course... It's a young white woman, so we must find out what happened, right? There was a call that came in from an alleged eyewitness. And in his call to the police, according to the operator script, he stated, My name is Sammy Mitchell, and I just seen a lady and some guy was jumping on her down near, near the Crystal Towers. Now, here's a twist. Sammy Mitchell was the name of Daryl Hunt's best friend. And they had actually been staying together for some time. As a couch detective, I'm sure you're like, what? Sammy, what are you doing? Like, why are you making this call? So Sammy had somewhat of a record, a little robbing here and there, spent some time in jail. And this at least made the police interested and wanted to talk to him. And when they went to question him about the call, he did not make it. He was like, "Nope, I didn't make a phone call. But guess who was there with him? Yep. Daryl Hunt. So the police talked to Sammy for a moment, and then Sammy went inside and was like, oh, Daryl, they want to talk to you. Well, obviously, they're going to want to talk to him at this point. They ended up playing the phone call for Daryl and asked him, do you recognize his voice? And Daryl was like, "Um, no. They're like, are you sure? He's like, yes, I'm sure. I don't know who that is. So the police was like, this is not Sammy. Daryl was like, no, that's not Sammy. A little sus, right? Now, the police are starting to think, okay, well, maybe whoever made this call wants us to know that Sammy is somehow involved. So, they bring in Daryl, and they pretty much wanted Daryl to say that it was Sammy. They even offered him $12,000 and was like, listen... Tell us that Sammy is the guy. He was the one that was out there near the Crystal Towers. He was the one that jumped on this lady and we'll give you this money. Let you go. But if you don't tell us that it was Sammy, then we are going to arrest you and we're going to give you the death penalty. He's like, I'm not saying that because it's not accurate. He even later testified in court that they tried to bribe him in this way. So this is Sketchy, sketchy. First thing that's sketchy to me. So eventually, Daryl was arrested for the rape and the murder of Deborah Sykes, all because of this sketchy phone call made by his so-called best friend. You can't see my quotation marks, but they're there. He was appointed a lawyer named Mark Rabble, And Mark was like, I'm young, and this is my first murder case. But Mark fought hard for him. And so did an alderman named Larry Little, who believed in Daryl's innocence from the start. And let me tell you, coming from the jump, Larry Little did not let up. He found out that the man who actually made the phone call, his name was Johnny Gray, Shady Gray. So the caller was not Sammy, Daryl's best friend after all. Once Larry Little found out this information, he obviously wanted to talk to Johnny. But Johnny said that he was informed by the police not to talk to him. Now get this. It's because Johnny had become a state witness. Taking little joy rides in the cop car, visiting the crime scene, and even seeing Daryl out at one point and pointing him out as a suspect while with the cops. It even went so far as to him picking Daryl out of a faulty lineup. And I say faulty because... In this lineup, Daryl's picture was completely different from the others, which all of us couch detectives, we know that that is a telltale sign to be like, hey, point at me, me, it's me. Even psychologists have said that this is a method that draws the person's attention to the picture that looks different and it often leads to false identification. The police knew what they were doing. Sketchy, yet again. But even after all of that, and the police telling Johnny not to speak with Little, he did end up talking to him, and the conversation was recorded. In this conversation, he admitted that he didn't even know Sammy Mitchell, and it was just the first name that came to his head. So this is all just a big, unfortunate coincidence. But keep in mind, this is also the basis of the case. Sammy, a.k.a. Johnny, his eyewitness statement, That phone call to the police and him picking him out of that faulty lineup. Now, Shady Grady is known around town for being just that, Shady. He has a long rap sheet and the police knew this. But even though he's admitted to lying about his identity in the phone call and he has a not so stellar past, the police was like, well... We are still going to pursue Daryl. No weapon, no DNA. But what we do have is a white woman that was killed and a black man in our custody. So let's go. During their investigation, they had a few more people come forward and say they also saw Daryl with Deborah. So this case was going to trial. Now the trial begins and surprise. A majority white jury. One black man, clearly not a jury of his peers. Darren Hunt was on trial for the rape and murder of Dara Sykes, where he maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial. From the start, people said the prosecution's witnesses were a tad bit janky, including Nazi folk, a 14-year-old prostitute, and cocaine addict, convicted felons, and the list goes. On. One of those people was Thomas Murphy, a self-proclaimed Nazi, who said that he saw Daryl with Deborah and just figured it was just another young white lady gone wrong for being with the colored. He didn't use colored. You guys probably know what he used. Child. Some other witnesses said that they also saw them together. A few witnesses said they saw him and thought he looked suspicious. How many times have we heard that one? There was also a man who said he thought he saw him in a hotel on the same day of the crime. Now, with this information, he also said he looked suspicious because he is in the Hyatt in 1984. And of course, a black man wouldn't be in here. Why would you be in such an upscale hotel? He said that the man he saw was struggling to open the door And he ended up going into the bathroom in the hotel. And guess what this man did? Because he can't mind his own business. Of course, he went into the bathroom after him. And he said that he saw what looked like a pinkish substance and concluded that it was blood in the sink. Sir. These people are all testifying under oath about things they thought they saw. But the defense's argument was like, listen... None of these accounts add up. They even had a witness that stated Daryl was with her at the time of the murder and the time of the crime. But all of these people are identifying Daryl at the scene of the crime. He had to have done it, right? Testimony after testimony, thought after thought, the defense put up a good fight for his innocence. There were even protests outside the court chanting, free Daryl. All to no avail. In 1985, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Thankfully, he dodged the death penalty that was on the table, but Daryl was sentenced to life in prison. Oh, but that's not where the story ends. So I told you that majority of this case occurs after the initial verdict was read. Remember Larry Little, the alderman, the one who talked to Johnny Gray? He didn't stop fighting. With the help of Daryl's lawyer, Mark Rabble, and the community, they went hard for Daryl's freedom. There were more protests, money raised, like real efforts to prove his innocence. Come home, United Front. And their resilience did end up getting him released on bond in 1990, but the fight was far from over. He could breathe just a little bit, but it was nowhere near the end. While out on bond, he stayed with one of the men who was also fighting for his freedom, Khaled Griggs and how actually had a stepdaughter that Daryl formed a relationship with. The case ended up being reinvestigated and the prosecutors offered him a deal for second degree murder. This meant that they would release him on time served. He would be free. Everybody was like, take it, take it. You're going home. Like If you just say, okay, I did it, second degree murder, I'll take it, I'm good to go. They will release you today. But Daryl was like, I can't do it. I cannot plead guilty to something that I didn't do, which is understandable. I get it. But back to trial we go. This time, the case goes back to court in Catawba County, which is actually my current county. So this case is all up in my backyard. And surprise, the jury, again, is all white. The goal was to get him away from Winston, where the case had already made so much noise, and already people picking sides, and their minds made up. So a change of venue was to hopefully get him a fair trial, but it's North Carolina, so you know how that issue goes. Johnny Gray, the initial caller, was back in the courthouse on the stand again, and he was slightly hostile this time around, denying most of the things that was initially said. Even saying once, if you want the answer to that, you have to turn to Jesus because I don't know it. This was in response to the lawyer asking him if he pulled Sammy's Mitchell's name out of the blue sky. Like, Johnny. Johnny's just a whole character. He was not the only one in there making janky statements. There was also a new witness. <sighs> there is this white man. Identifying himself as a Nazi, of course that was in the same jail as Daryl, who claimed he heard him confess to the crime. He ended up writing a letter to the DA, riddled with racism, and they left this letter in as testimony and as evidence. I can't make this up, y'all. He literally had all the cards stacked against him. And the biggest blow of this trial was when the prosecutor decided to show the jury of all whites images of Deborah's dead body to play on their emotions. Now, granted, the crime occurred. No one is denying that. She deserved justice. No one is denying that. They should have all the facts of the case. But, who? my goodness. Out of more witnesses more testimonies, a couple more racists, a few more felons, the verdict came back. And guilty of first-degree murder again. The disappointment, right? At this point, you're probably thinking, man, he should have just taken the deal. He'd be home. It's not that simple. Fast forward three years later in 1993, they're at it again. defense team is not letting up they're like listen our witnesses were tampered with and intimidated by the police the prosecutors had no solid evidence so give us a hearing to prove that the hearing was granted and in the hearing they requested that the charges be dropped or at least granted a new trial the judge was like nah i'm good but I will order a DNA test to compare Daryl's DNA to what was found on Deborah's body. Why didn't this happen before, right? Let me tell you why. The SBI, which is also known as the State Bureau of Investigation, their files were sealed off. They had no access to them until it was time for the defense to come back up with this reinvestigation. And they're like, None of the information that they had from the SBI was given to them to begin with, including access to the DNA tests. Y'all, this entire case is so sketchy the way that they handled it. So they did order the DNA test. The judge did have them to order the DNA test. In October 22nd, 1993, those results came back and it didn't match. Yes, right? Like, let Daryl go home at this point, right? Nope. Now they're like, well, just because he's not the rapist doesn't mean he wasn't involved. The prosecution has been saying it's been more than one person that was involved in the crime. But there was also no match to Johnny Gray, the caller, or Sammy Mitchell, the best friend. So none of the people that the prosecutors thought were involved in the beginning. It also didn't match her husband. They're like, this had to have been contaminated with. Just because it didn't match him, doesn't mean he wasn't involved. The judge was like, no. The DNA is reliable and it's not Daryl's. Right? A little bit of hope. Nope. He goes on to say, maybe he just didn't deposit the sperm Maybe he entered her anally. Maybe he didn't come. So just because this isn't his sperm doesn't mean he didn't rape her. So I conclude this evidence, it doesn't matter. The request for a new trial and a release is not granted. Go ahead and send him back to jail. Are you serious? The exhaustion The pain, my goodness. Daryl's defense team is loyal though, y'all. They are taking it even further. They took it to the North Carolina Supreme Court, hopeful, considering there is no DNA match or no murder weapon. So they're like, I am pretty sure we can get this new trial. There is nothing solid to keep him in jail. On December 30th, 1994, this is 10 years after the murder. The Supreme Court is like, no, we are not going to give you a new trial. He's going to stay in jail. This is so frustrating and heartbreaking for those who have been fighting so hard for him, those who believed in his innocence, but most of all for Daryl himself. Daryl talks about how his time in jail was hell, riddled with threats, fear, conspiracies by the guard to have him killed, and downright racism. On October 16, 2006, six years after the Supreme Court denied the first appeal, they denied the defense a new trial yet again. This is now 16 years after the murder. In 2003, three years later, his defense team, led by Mark Rabble. Remember, this is his first murder case, but he is going so hard and refusing to give up on Daryl. He pushed to check the state's database for possible DNA matches, and coincidentally, during that same time, the Winston-Salem Journal was preparing to put out stories on this case as well. With some of Mark's notes and evidence, they ended up releasing an eight-part series on the case. Front page news, honey. Now, this made some noise, Calls started coming in with some people with connections to the case, different leads, a rape that happened to another woman by a man named Willard Brown, but they were like, "Nah, Willard couldn't have done it. He was in jail at the time, so womp, womp. Several connections, but nothing solid until the database came back with a DNA match. On December nineteenth, two 2003, after all the work searching through the database, the Winston-Salem Journal publishing the story, looking through the evidence, Mark pushing there was a DNA match to Willard Brown, the man that was accused of raping another woman around the same time. After digging deeper, they found out he was not in jail at the time. During that time, someone had even made a report about willard and said that there was a possible connection to the deborah sykes case but the police ignored it because they had their eyes set on daryl willard actually ended up confessing saying in his confession "It's part of the game it's all in the game the devil started it i just played it sir we don't like those kind of games we don't play those kind of games but even with this new evidence, the confession and all, the prosecutors were like, well, we've been saying it was more than one person. So this new evidence doesn't really, really mean that much, but we'll look into it. By this time, more people are on the hunt train, including some white pastors, which apparently folk listen to, big surprise, but it paid off. And on Christmas Eve, December twenty fourth, 2003, after a little over a year of the DNA match, Daryl Hunt walked out of the Piedmont Correctional Facility a free man after serving almost 20 years for a crime he did not commit. What a Christmas gift to his wife, April, right? As well as all of the individuals who fought so hard for his freedom and Daryl himself. Now, the goal is to get Daryl exonerated. February 6, 2004. Before the judge's ruling on if Daryl Hunt will be exonerated, Deborah Sykes' mother told the court and the judge that she did not believe that Daryl Hunt was innocent. And if they let him free, they would be letting a guilty man go. This shook my spirit because I understand you're hurt, I understand your pain, but it's obvious, and evidence has proven that he didn't do it in his statement to the court, he maintained his innocence and even addressed her mom directly, telling her he had no involvement in her daughter's death. The judge ruling came back Daryl Hunt was exonerated. The case was dismissed without prejudice and the judge stated that a grave mistake had taken place. Daryl Hunt was initially awarded $358,545 by the state of North Carolina, which is about $20,000 for every year that he served, which is nowhere near enough money for the time he lost while behind bars. In 2007 though, a settlement of about $1.6 million was reached and rewarded to Hunt, which is still not enough. Willa Brown was sentenced to life plus 10 years in prison for the rape and for the murder of Deborah Sykes. After his exoneration, the chant, Daryl Hunt is free, rung loud through the churches and streets of Weston salem North Carolina but was he really free? During his time out, he remained in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he spent time with his wife April before a divorce. He ran a foundation that helped wrongly convicted individuals and was also unfortunately diagnosed with stomach and prostate cancer, according to Journal Now. His family had some concerns about his mental health and rightfully so, because he was still affected by the injustice brought against him for all of those years. Sadly, on March 13th, 2006, 12 years after he was exonerated and after being missing for nine days, Daryl Hunt was found dead in his friend Larry Little's car in a parking lot from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the torso. A tragic end to a very tragic story, which I personally think should be further investigated. If what you just heard has you intrigued, this case was actually turned into a documentary titled The Trials of Daryl Hunt in 2006, where a lot of the information from this episode came from. They have the trial snippets and interviews. You can find that film on Amazon Prime. Until next time, keep an eye out on your backyard.